Well, thank you very much um, for the invitation and for the privilege. It's always a privilege to share uh, thoughts from God's word. We're going to focus this morning on John chapter 10, verse 10. And the theme of my thinking is going to be around living life to the full. Because I believe that that's what God's desire is for us. But there's a context to John chapter 10. There's a context to the coming of Christ. And we go back to Genesis. And there are three themes that run from Genesis chapter 1 uh, to 11. And the theme that I like most is the theme that I'm going to use to introduce and frame the talk this morning. Uh, A theologian by the name of David Klein says that between Genesis 1 to 11, there are three themes. The first one is what he calls the spread of sin and the spread of grace. That as we look in the passage, as we look through the first 11 chapters, we see sin spreading in the world. But as we see sin spreading, we see grace spreading. And that's, uh, it, it ties in with what Paul says, that where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. So in the Old Testament, God is already embodying and expressing grace in the first 11 chapters of, of Genesis. And we won't go into how that happens. The second one is the, th- the theme he identified, the theme of sin mitigation and judgment. And he says that God is a God of judgment because he's a God who's holy. And therefore, when we commit a sin, he has to exercise judgment. But because he knows that we're made of grass and we're just feeble, he looks for mitigating circumstances. And it's true, if you ever follow somebody to court, which I've done on, on numerous occasions, um, if, they, if someone gets in trouble with the, with the court and the judge says, look, you should get a custodial sentence, but we would ask for a report from your social worker and the probation officer to see if there are any mitigating circumstances. Is there anything that's happening in your family, in your personal life, in your finances, in your friendships, in your community that explains this aberration of behavior, why you've behaved in this way? And I've seen this happen before where a judge has said, you're going to prison, Mr. So-and-so. And a couple of us have given testimonies, testified to the person's life, and the judge says, well, the mitigating circumstances are your father was ill at the time and your mum was under duress and you felt the pressure and therefore you won't go to prison you have 200 hours community service god looks for mitigating circumstances in our sin and i think that's very powerful but the one that i really love is the theme that david Klein's identifies of what he calls creation uncreation and recreation and he talks about how god creates a fantastic universe and if you're at the conference if you can get the the, the talk of the opening talk um, uh, there was a fantastic exposition of how god made things very good and it's this, that's the pattern of Genesis. God creates a fantastic world and says, this is very good. But sin comes into the world and starts the process of uncreation. So Adam falls out with Eve. He says, you're bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And then when sin comes into the world, he says, well, that woman. The first accusation, the first domestic uh, uh, kind of conflict in scripture comes out as a result of the uncreation of the relationship between Adam and Eve. Then we see the uncreation of what they call familial relationships between Cain and Abel. So Cain kills Abel. It was supposed to be an archetype of the kind of models that family life is supposed to be, but we see that that's uncreated. Then God makes the universe perfect. The ground is giving out beautiful flowers and the trees have got lovely apples and, and then all of a sudden there's tears in the ground. And so we see this uncreation taking place. But in Christ, God promises that the serpent would hurt the the heel of the redeemer, but the redeemer will crush the serpent's head. So there's this prophecy about a future creation in Christ that's going to come and transform the world. And so as we come to John chapter 10, we see that we're 
we're reading scripture in the context of what I call God's cosmic project of regeneration. God is completely transforming the world and transforming people in the world. And we're introduced to this gospel of John. And John is very different from Matthew, Mark and Luke, which are the synoptic gospels, because John is more concerned with theological history. He's not concerned with making sure the chronology is in place. He doesn't care whether it happened yesterday or the day after or the day before. What John is trying to do is use an incident that gives us an insight and a revelation as to who Christ was in who, who Christ was and what Christ was seeking to achieve. So John is interested in theological history. That's why sometimes when you read John, it doesn't all make sense because it's not in order, but it's not meant to be. He's making a point about God and not a point about time. And so we're introduced to um, this Jesus who is with the Father. And he, as the Message Bible says, moves into the neighborhood. John chapter 1 verse 14. And we read in 1 John chapter 1 through to verse 3 that... Jesus is touched. That which we've touched, that which we've... They, they're intimate with Jesus. He comes close. He has very close proximity to the people that he's involved with. And um, he comes to bring change and transformation. And as we go through the Gospel of John, we haven't got the time this morning, but we come to this chapter, chapter 10. And Jesus turns around to the disciples and the people around him and he says, listen... I just want to tell you, I've come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. I've come to recreate that which was uncreated. I've come to enlist you as part of God's workers in this cosmic project of regeneration. I've come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. And the first point I want to make this morning is a very simple point, and it's this. God's desire for you and for me is for us to have life in all its fullness. That's God's desire. But the problem is we're told that, but we're not often taught how. And I'm very practical. So it's good to know that God desires life in all its fullness for me, but the question then becomes how. And I think the Gospel of John offers us two insights into how God desires to give us life in all its fullness. And I think the first one is what I want to call a progressive encounter with Scripture. That's the way God wants to begin to shape in us and deposit within us and to form within us life in all its fullness. We exchange our lives with Christ. We give him our lives and he gives us his life. But that life needs to be nourished and that life needs to be fed by the truth and the revelation of scripture. And it's interesting, if you go back a few verses, a few chapters in John chapter 8, We're looking at this idea of progressive encounter with scripture. The Bible says you should know the truth and the truth shall set you free. In actual fact, it says if you continue in my word. In other words, if you continue to have a progressive encounter with the word of God from the point where you're at, you'll begin to incrementally experience life in all its fullness. The if is there as a conditional clause. In other words, the promise of life in all its fullness in John chapter 10 verse 10 is only possible if we spend time in the word. If we have a progressive encounter with scripture. It's fascinating. If you go back to John chapter 1, 
Christ himself is introduced as the word. He is the embodiment of the word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The Greek word for with is the word pros. And I always say to people, using Greek and Hebrew is not being clever. It's just being deep. Because there are some things you don't understand in English that you will understand in Greek and Hebrew. So my mum came from Nigeria. And when I used to get upset with her, she never used to speak English. She used to speak Yoruba. She would say, Tunde toba shere ma foyete ma wenwe. Now that doesn't mean much to you. Let me uh, give me an interpretation. It basically means this, David. If you do not behave yourself, I will slap you so hard that the teeth will drop out of your gums and your jaw will collapse. <laughs> or, by the time my hand hits your ears, your ears will dissolve from the side of your face. Now, you can see the force of language. That's not like saying, David, you're going to get a little smack for being a naughty boy. When she said, Toba, Shore, my foyer, I'm like, you know what, Mama, I'm big, but I could run. <laughs> there is a force in the language. If you continue in my word, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you continue to be face to face with the word, like I am face to face with the father, then you will be transformed by the word. I call it the transforming power of the contemplative gaze. That actually if we spend time in the presence of God, allowing who he is to define who we are, that contemplative gaze has the power to transform us when we're rooted in the word, face to face with God, allowing him to define who we are. That's not my suggestion, it's the Apostle Paul. He says in 2 Corinthians that we with unveiled faces gaze into the face of Christ and we become like him. Graham Kendrick, who is a well, very well-known worship leader in London, uh, wrote it in the song, as we gaze into your kingly brightness, so our faces display your likeness, ever-changing from glory to glory, mirrored here, may our lives tell your story, shine on me. If we're going to live life in all its fullness, and that is what God's desire is for us, we're going to have to be people that are progressively encountering scripture. And that encounter with scripture would define who we are. John chapter 10 verse 10 has a conceptual link to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17 to 19. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17 to 19, Paul prays a very powerful prayer. Praise this prayer. My prayer for you is for, he says, for this reason I bow my knee. And it goes on and says, I pray that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened. And you might know the hope to which he has called you. And the power that is available to you in Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul prays between 17, Ephesians 1 verse 17 and verse 19. Push it to 21 if you want. The word enlightened is a very powerful word. It's the, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's the Greek word for tizo. And I, I, I explain it in this way. Paul says, my prayer for you is that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened. In the Greek, N is in and light is photos. And Paul plays around with these words and conflates two words together. And effectively what he's saying, my prayer for you is that God will take you out of darkness and into light concerning who you are. 
We heard at the conference that the image of God is corroded in us, but very present. But Paul says, as we spend time face to face with God and in the word, then God by his spirit through prayer, the Christ praying for us and we praying for one another and we praying for ourselves, God will place us in light concerning who we are. Now, this is interesting because a few years ago, I was diagnosed with an eye disease. It's a degenerative eye disease. And uh, fortunately, the, the degeneration has stopped. But um, I went to an optician to get some glasses and they said to me, your eyes are just terrible. And I'm surprised nobody spotted this. Go to the hospital. So I went to the hospital and they introduced me to Mr. Rostrum. Mr. Rostrum was the head of the ophthalmology department. And he did some tests on my eyes. And um, he said to me, you have a condition called keratoconus. And what's that, doctor? He said it's the excessive protrusion of the cornea. Instead of your cornea being round, it's very triangular. It's not sending the appropriate signals to the auditory, uh, to the visual cortex, and therefore you're not seeing properly. What, what's, the, what's the solution, doctor? There's two solutions, he says. The first is that we do a radical procedure, a corneal graft. I mean, it's very familiar now, but back then they just introduced it. He said, I don't recommend it. You're a young man, you could lose your sight. At least you've got some sight in your eye. What's the second option, doctor? He says, well, the second option is that I think you should get some contact lenses. So I said, okay, no, no. <laughs> take your advice, Mr. Rosson. Thank you very much, sir. So he gets these, some, these um, contact lenses and he puts them in my eye. And I look around the room and I think, how come yellow is so yellow? <laughs> and why is blue so blue? And purple so purple? In other words, the degenerative condition of my eyes had made me reconcile that the reality that I was seeing was in fact reality when it wasn't. And it seems to me that this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying that we actually have an understanding and a definition of ourselves that contradicts what God says about us. And so through this progressive encounter with scripture, God is seeking to enlighten us, to put us in light. In other words, God is seeking to place contact lenses on our spirits so that we can see who we really are. See the blue that we are and the yellow that we are, the gifts that we have, even with the brokenness that we possess. Paul says, my prayer is that the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened, that you might have knowledge. That's fascinating. Um, there's lots of words for knowledge in the Greek. Gnosis is the basic idea that you've got lots of information. But when you, could, you can move from gnosis to gnosko. Gnosko is when you've got information, but you can apply it to life. So you can graduate from university with a law degree. You're gnosis. You've got legal knowledge. When you become an advocate or a solicitor or a barrister, then you become gnosko. And Paul's praying that you would have that gnosko, that insight, that, that lived experience of Knowing a progressive encounter with scripture that defines and transforms who we are. It's interesting to note that in scripture, the Greek word for truth is not about propositional truth, what's in your head, it's about experiential truth, aletheia. It's not about what you know. So lots of us can know lots of things, but actually may not be truth. <laughs> and some of us can know a little bit and it could be absolute truth and not so much information. I'd rather go for truth rather than knowledge, aletheia rather than gnosis. The second thing that happens if we want to have an encounter with God is that we need to be open to the Holy Spirit. 
and allow the Holy Spirit to begin to give us insight in our lives. And I, I don't want to go into too much detail here about this, but I, uh, it's, I've had some fascinating experiences just asking the Holy Spirit. They've got this m- way of doing mission in, around the world called treasure hunting. I don't know if you've heard of it. Just, people just say, Lord, tell us what's out there. And we've had some incredible experiences. Uh, and I, I, Not that I won't bore you with it, but I've got 25 minutes and I like to keep the time. <laughs> but we need to be intimate with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit takes information and transforms it into truth through experience. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's, it's, he is not an it. In the same way your wife or your son or your friends are not it. They are them or him or her. He is a person with emotion and thoughts and communicates. And if we give him the opportunity to begin to work inside of our lives, he will do a deep work of grace inside of us. And he will begin to release in us the fullness of God's desire, God's life in us. So the first point is that God desires life in all its fullness to be an experience that we all have. The second point is this. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The enemy's plan is to make life in all its fullness an experience that you don't encounter. And you've got to watch out for that. And I meet people who say, I don't believe in the thief. I don't believe in your theology of warfare. I'm like, that's fine. You know, I could be an insurance broker. You might not believe in buying insurance, but don't be silly enough to leave your front door open with your keys on the side and the remote control available for your television and your CD, because somebody will come in. Whether you believe in thieves or not, somebody will come in and take that stuff and sell it down the road. So whether you've got a theology of of spiritual warfare that I have or you haven't, you need to have a theology of spiritual warfare. Because Jesus has told us that a thief exists and he comes to steal, to kill and to destroy. I had my experience of the enemy coming to steal and kill and destroy in a very definite way in 2006. My brother who was five years older than me went to Nigeria, he was going to get married. And while he was out there, I received a telephone call while I was speaking at a conference that he had, been, he had uh, suffered a relapse of uh, a psychiatric condition that he had uh, first experienced 21 years previously in Nigeria. And that he had been rushed to hospital and that he was in a deep state of psychosis. We asked a friend to go and see him. The friend said that he was, uh, he was recovering, but he wasn't, he wasn't his normal self. That was on a Saturday at 4 o'clock. On Monday morning, I, was have, I just had a shower. I was getting ready to go to Nigeria to go and escort my brother back with a cousin. And my uncle phoned bright and early in the morning and said to me, I need you to know your brother died. Three o'clock this morning. For the first time in my life, I asked God if you really exist. Do you really love me? I trusted you with this. And... Um, it was terrible having to just sit down and watch a black van drive in and place my brother in the funeral home and not allowed to see him until the coroner, who had absolute authority over his body, gave us permission to do that. My dad died of congenit- congenitive or yeah, con- congestive heart failure in 1999. My mum died of breast cancer. In 1989, my wife lost a child. And I began to ask this life in all its fullness, Lord, are you having a laugh? Are you, are you some, is this some sort of sick joke? And all of us have our respective experiences this morning. Some of us, maybe your marriage broke down. 
Maybe finances are not going right, career is not going right, health is not going right, emotional, psychological, spiritual maladies are defining our life experiences. We've got character flaws. There's issues around various forms of abuse, which is a huge issue in church, 20% prevalence of, of sexual abuse in church, and it came up in, in the conference. And that's just talking about women, the hidden abuse that happens with men. And we, we grow up thinking, life in all its fullness, are you joking? Are you being serious? Life throws stuff at us. And the enemy seeks to kill and steal and to destroy. But what happened when my brother died was this. I remember a, vid a video I saw of a lady called Vlodka Vlachic. She was a high jumper. And what was interesting with Vlodka, she wanted to achieve her personal best at the 1988 Osaka Games, Commonwealth Games. And so she got to the competition and say her, high, her personal best was three feet, she, she managed to beat her personal best in the first round, so she was excited. So she thought, I'm gonna go for the world record. So she then put it to, said to them, can you make it three foot one? And they said, okay, that's cool, Vlodka, we'll do that for you. She knocked it down. And I came back, well, you've got three chances, let's go again, three foot, three foot one. No, and she came back the last time and said, can you take it up to three foot five? So I'm looking and saying, Sister Vodka, do you remember what happened the last previous two times? But she did something different this time. She turned to the crowd and she asked the crowd to start clapping. And then she stood there for an extended period of time. Usually she would rock. And this time she just stood there as if she was hypnotized. And what I discovered is that she was doing something that sports psychologists called motor visual behavior rehearsal. It's the process of creating such a compelling picture in your mind that the neurons and the dendrites in your brain that cause neural pathways to be formed create the optimum chemical, electronical and physiological conditions in your body to ensure that the picture that you imagine is going to be realized the moment you take action. So athletes are not taught, I'm, you can tell I'm not an athlete, but those of you that I mean, I read. Athletes have been taught that you don't have to run fast. You have to imagine running fast. And the brain will automatically condition itself to run at optimum level. And I want to suggest to you that that's what you need to do if you're going through a difficult time at the moment. You need to motor visual behavior rehearsal. You need to create a compelling picture in your mind about an alternative reality to what you're currently experiencing. And then allow that reality to become reality in life, not just in your brain. A few years ago, Michael Tyson was fighting with Frank Bruno. I'll close in a few moments. Frank Bruno is a you know, legend British boxer, and Mike Tyson was a legend American boxer. And they, Frank Bruno, they said he didn't have an ounce of fat on his body. He was perfectly toned. And he got into the ring with Frank Bruno, and he, it, with Mike Tyson, and he hit Mike Tyson. Sorry for those of you that don't like boxing. But he hit Mike Tyson, and Mike Tyson was shaken. And the commentator, who was Frank Bruno's friend, shouted, go on, Frank, get him. And he wasn't supposed to, because he was supposed to be impartial. <laughs> But Frank Bruno was of such a belief that he could not defeat Mike Tyson that when he hit him hard enough and rocked him to the core, he didn't have the presence of mind to continue with a combination blow. 
I want to suggest that that's the enemy's strategy with us often. That he has been utterly, unequivocally defeated in Christ. But sometimes we get mad enough to smack him back one. And he gets shaken. But because we don't have the psychological, spiritual presence of mind, because of a lack of progressive encounter with scripture, and the lack of intimacy with the Holy Spirit, instead of following up with the combination, we step back like Frank Bruno, even though we're in perfect physical condition to destroy the enemy. And in the next round, Frank Bruno was given the beating of his life by Mike Tyson. But in the previous round, he could have absolutely destroyed him. I want to encourage you that life in all its fullness is God's desire for you. But you've got to fight back. You can't be lazy. You can't be indifferent. You've got to go in there wanting to win. And recognizing that Christ backs you up in that. The third thing, and I'll close with this. Life in all its fullness is God's desire for us. The enemy comes in and doesn't want that to be our experience. But we need to live in what I call the possibility of more. If life in all its fullness is God's desire for us, and we find that through a progressive encounter with scripture, and scripture can never be exhausted because God's revelation is constantly being renewed by the spirit, then that means there's always something more to learn about God. There's always the possibility of more. And listen to this phrase, this quote. It's, an, it's a long quote, but listen to it, and then we'll close with a single remark. It's written by a man called J. Sidlow Baxter. He wrote a book called Majesty, The God That You Should Know. And this is what J. Sidlow Baxter said. God is the greatest of all mysteries and the greatest of all realities. He is the infinite mystery behind all reality and the absolute reality behind all mystery. Unimaginably exceeding the profoundest grasp of human comprehension and beyond all verbal definition. Neither the phenomenal universe nor the invisible universe of thought has any satisfactory explanation apart from God. But the being of God himself, he is utterly beyond explanation. He immeasurably outbounds the most distant reach of stars and space in all directions. Yet he is exquisitely close to each of us, as so to be in Tennyson's words, closer than breathing, nearer than hands and feet. He's the one in whom we live and move and whom we have our being. The God in whose hand our breath is. The infinite who fills everywhere with everything. Before all other beings began, God already was, or rather eternally is. When he created the universe, he added nothing to himself. And as he still creates amid his universe, adds nothing to himself. For to the infinite, nothing can be added. Listen to this. How glibly we Christians speak about God. As though biblical revelation and systematic theology has reduced the infinite deity to finite comprehension. Nay, even amidst the noonday blaze of completed biblical revelation and the incarnate Emmanuel, God still remains sheer mystery as well as supreme reality. I did not expect you to follow that. <laughs> but it tells us that there's the possibility of more. And we often domesticate and manage and contain God. And Aslam wants to be free.